Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. Hey, it's Ryan. This is the Soundtrack Your Life podcast. Thanks for listening. Today we are going to talk about the 1980 iconic film Xanadu. Uh, directed by Richard Greenwald. My guest today is the owner of the Roots and Blues Festival in Columbia, Missouri, as well as the writer of the Listening Gallery blog. Uh, Welcome to the show, Tracy Lane. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I'm excited to talk about Xanadu with you. If you you were to Google Xanadu, the information about the film will pop up, as well as a couple of press blurbs from the time. Variety calls this movie stupendously bad. So why are we talking about Xanadu today? I think that at the time, Xanadu, uh, obviously it was not at all loved by the critics. Um, You will also read that it uh, did not really um, make its budget back. It was really panned universally, I think, at the time of its release. On the other hand, I think looking back at it 40 years now, um, it just... Uh, I've been thinking a lot about Xanadu because it was very pivotal in my childhood and my my musical history. But um, the 40th anniversary of the film was just last month on August 8th, so I just rewatched it recently and had written a, a blog post about it. And uh, there is truly a magic to this film. It's it's ridiculous in so many ways, but it's captivating in just as many ways. And some of that kind of uh, over-the-top 80s excess, I think looking back on that 40 years later, is charming. It's, it's, you know, my daughter and her generation have sort of come to see this film as this really lovely, kitschy kind of cult film that celebrates the excess of the 1980s. But uh, there are a lot of things, a lot of complexities about the film. Like we can, we can certainly discuss the pros and cons of uh, this crazy plot, but um, I don't think you can argue uh, about the soundtrack. The soundtrack is solid. I mean, those 10 songs are, they're brilliant. I mean, Electric Light Orchestra is a, a remarkable band. I think they were also sort of before their time. And um, Xanadu was really the the vehicle that moved Olivia Newton-John from country artist to pop artist. And then she went on after a decade of the 70s of being a successful pop artist, which is where I grew up on a farm in the country. I am a farmer's daughter. And um, in 1972, her first American full-length album um, was... I was obsessed with it. I st- it's, it's hanging in a frame on my wall in my living room, actually, uh, autographed by Olivia when I, I got to meet her in 2006. So my fascination really, could, you kind of have to go back eight years to 1972. You know, I'm this, this farm girl, uh, mostly exposed to country music because that's sort of, it was the format of where my environment. Um, and I also listened to a lot of, of, sort of that Southern California Laurel Canyon stuff. My mom was very into Linda Ronstadt 
and um, Joni Mitchell and Jackson Brown. So I was listening to that stuff. And then um, Olivia and John came along and she was sort of in that world that sort of not quite pop, not quite country, not quite folk sound. And um, yeah, I was, I was a big fan. So um, then I was a really weird kid if you're not picking up on that already. I was really obsessed with music for, from the very beginning of time. And so when I went to kindergarten, I was like, I was really into Broadway soundtracks. We could talk about that aspect of soundtracks too, especially Funny Girl. Um, I, I, I took this Funny Girl soundtrack to kindergarten, to my kindergarten classroom. I was really shy and introverted. I didn't have any friends. I much preferred being alone in my bedroom, singing along to these Broadway records than like playing with other kids. And so, um, but I really thought that when I, uh, on your birthday, you got to bring your favorite record to school in kindergarten and play it during snack time. And I just thought for sure that when my uh, classroom heard I'm the Greatest Star by Barbara Streisand, that like everybody was gonna wanna be my best friend. Um, it did not go like that it, at all. Uh, I, it was, I was kind of booed out of the schoolroom, and um, it, was, it was a crushing day for me. Um, so any, that was actually my first obsession of soundtracks was the Funny Girl soundtrack. I saw it on TV when I was three years old, and uh, yeah, I was pretty obsessed with that for quite a while. Um, so anyway, at the end of kindergarten, my mom really was like, what do I do with this weird kid? She just wants to sit in her room and listen to records, and she has no interest in making friends. So she bought me a pair of roller skates and I started going to the local roller rink in town. And um, that was in 1975. And uh, the first time I heard electric light orchestra was at the roller rink in 1975 and uh, strange magic just completely blew my mind. I had never heard those soaring sonic kind of sounds in, in, in music before, you know, I was mostly listening to folk and country and, uh, and some soul too. I was also obsessed with Soul Train in those days. And Jackson 5 was my first concert actually in 1973. Wow. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so Electric Light Orchestra was remarkably different from anything I'd heard. I mean, my parents did not get the lead out. I was not into any of that, you know, really classic rock stuff. I had never heard it before. And so, you know, so I'm this elementary school kid obsessed with Olivia Newton-John is my favorite female country artist. And then Electric Light Orchestra is my favorite rock band. And then um, when the summer that I turned 11, Xanadu comes out. And it's, I mean, there could be nothing more thrilling for me than these two artists to come together and make a soundtrack. And the thing that was really cool was that they released four singles before they released the full album and before the film came out. So like all summer long, I was listening to this, these singles and just trying to figure out what is this song gonna, I mean, what is this movie about, right? Like, you know, the first one is Olivia's Magic and um, it came out on my 11th birthday, which I thought was magical, of course. And then, uh, then there's like the two two ELO tracks came out uh, all over the world. And um, what was the other one? I'm looking at my cheat sheet. Um, I'm Alive. And both of those songs were just spectacular. And they're playing them at the skating rink. And then Xanadu comes out. And then finally, 
the end of the summer in August, the movie comes out. And so I live in this really small town and in order to be able to see a movie when it comes out, you gotta go to the city. So my mom drives me three hours to Kansas City so that I can see Xanadu on opening day in 1980. Wow. And, and it was a good day for this. I didn't, it was, um, you know, it was like everything I hoped it would be. It was like, I was really obsessed with, you know, the entertainment industry and was really set on, I really wanted to be a Broadway star throughout elementary school. That was my obsession. Um, I couldn't sing or dance, but I thought I could. <laughs> so, um, you know, Xanadu opened this other side of the entertainment business that I'd never really seen before. You know, like Danny McGuire is a, is a club owner. And then, you know, you've got Sonny Malone who works for a record company and he paints these, these album covers that they hang outside of Tower Records. And so I'm seeing all these other aspects of the entertainment business that I'd never seen before. And I'm like, oh, okay, there's got to be something in LA that I could do. You know, there's, there's a place for me there. Like, maybe Broadway is not going to be my thing. Maybe LA is going to be my thing. And then seven years later, three weeks after high school, I moved to LA. <laughs> yeah, so the film was shot in Los Angeles, right? It's a lot of sound stages, um, especially for those musical numbers, but there's some stuff shot outside of LA, like the like the beach, right? Like, that's a that's a California beach that they're shooting at. Yeah, you get to see uh, the Venice Boardwalk, the sort of obsession with roller disco at Venice in you know the early '80s is is very present in the film. And then, of course, you know Olivia comes to life from a mural painted on the wall on the Venice Boardwalk. Right. I was actually kind of confused when the movie started. I thought that he had painted that mural. Uh, yeah, I could see that because he's, yeah, that's what he does. He paints, so, yeah. And I believe according to Wikipedia that in the earlier drafts of the film that he is the person who painted the mural, but they really? had to cut that out. Mm. Yeah, instead he ends up, she appears on an album cover that he has to paint. Yeah, I guess it's kind of streamlining things or connecting what he's doing for, for a job. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, so I, I just watched the movie today. Um, I, I want to say that in one of my film classes in college, I think a professor or a classmate told me not to watch the movie <laughs> because I'm, cause I really love singing in the rain. So I, I think it was a professor and I think he was addressing the whole class. And I, I, and I think they were like, you know, singing in the rain, classic film, Gene, you know, Gene Kelly directing and, you know, he's directing the film. He's starring in the film. Um, you know, this is the Gene Kelly you want to remember. You don't want to watch the Gene Kelly and Xanadu. <laughs> I want to say like that was the quote. So I've been kind of afraid of Xanadu all this time. And then I've decided that today I was going to face my fear. And, you know, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a bad movie. Like I, it's a flawed film. You know, it's, it, it's a movie of excess. It's, you know, I don't, I don't think Martin Scorsese would call it cinema, <laughs> but you know, it like my, my friend had used to host like a bad movie night at his, uh, at his apartment. And I don't think, Zan I think Xanadu's too good to be that, to be a bad movie. Yeah. I think it has truly evolved. I think that time has caught up with, you know, this concept was maybe a little too, uh, 
lofty, maybe. I'll use that word. Probably not the best word, but uh, at the time to sort of, I mean, you've got, it's a musical. It's a love story. It's, uh, it's got mythology. It's got the Gene Kelly dancing classical Gene Kelly style. You got the, you know, a sort of reimagining of the Z Cavaricci boutique in Beverly Hills in one scene. You got the amazing, you know, there's the amazing architecture that they used, the, the Pan Pacific building, which was a, you know, an icon in Los Angeles. And that, that was Xanadu. So, um, and then, you know, and then, you know, they, this, this roller skating muse recites this Samuel Taylor Coleridge poem about Kublai Khan's Xanadu uh, to Gene Kelly's character and voila, Xanadu is born. So uh, there's a lot happening in there for sure. And then there's that crazy animated scene that just makes no sense. It has nothing to do with the whole plot of the film. And, and it, it seems pretty long considering that it doesn't really carry any sort of plot points. But um, I think, as you said, they're just looking to sort of do everything and in order to, to make this film of excess, well, there has to be this animated musical scene, you know, where a roller skating muse then turns into a bird and then turns into a fish. Why not? Yeah, it, it seems like, I don't know, like it, it feels like midway through the production of the film, like they just came upon all this extra money and they just needed to find like ways to spend it. <laughs> I actually read that they had to create that animated scene because part of the deal with um, Jeff Lynn and Olivia Newton-John was that they each had to have the same number of songs and they couldn't find a place, a scene to put this song. So they created an animated scene in order to fulfill the contractual agreement for the, with regard to the music. Yeah, it feels like there's a lot of different creative forces at play, like all pulling in different directions in the movie. Um, you know, like the Gene Kelly number at the beginning of the film where he walks, where they walk into, um, where he and Sonny, his character and and Sonny, they walk into his house, which looks straight out of like singing in the rain. Mm-hmm. And I think he even like, makes i don't know if it's a meta joke he goes a silent film star used to live here so sunny leaves and then he reminisces about the old times and then he does this big sing and dance number which looks straight out of you know a peak gene kelly mgm film right and he even like mugs in the camera and like pulls on his face and stuff like all very (laughs) vintage like very gene kelly classics yeah yeah so it seems like that was kind of shoehorned into the film to like satisfy gene kelly or even like when he's like trying to like when they're um, talking about the opening night of the club and they bring him into the clothes shop, like he's even like right. super like he's totally mugging in there as well. Yeah. 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 And actually the Gene Kelly character in this film is based on a character from his 1944 film called Cover Girl. Uh, he plays Danny McGuire, who's a club owner in the 40s. And then. In Xanadu, Danny McGuire is this, you know, kind of, you know, sort of disgruntled by the industry, older man living in this mansion, apparently near the beach, I guess. And uh, 
his character is Danny McGuire, who once owned a club, you know, and he reminisces about his, his club. And apparently Olivia Newton-John was uh, also his muse when he opened his club in the 40s. So I found a quote from Gene Kelly about the film, and he actually thought it was a good concept. You know, while, while people are like, oh, I can't believe this is the last movie he ever did. Mm-hmm. And they compare it to Orson Welles' last film was the animated Transformers film, <laughs> which I loved as a kid, but I can understand why people would think that's kind of a sad, sad exit to the film yeah. world. In Gene Kelly's opinion, the concept was marvelous, but it just didn't come off. Hmm. That's interesting, because I've always sort of wondered, you know, I always thought he must have looked at that script, and I always thought, how in the world did they ever talk him into doing it? I can't imagine reading that script and being like, I'm Gene Kelly, and I should totally do this movie. But, uh, well, that's good to know. He, he, he was totally on board. It's exciting. It makes me happy to know that. I'm glad you shared that. He, he roller skated, you know, in that film, and he was, what, I think... 68. 68. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine. I was obsessed with roller skating in the 70s, but I wouldn't even dare to get on roller skates now in my 50s. So I can't imagine doing it at 68. But I think that's one of the really sort of exciting moments of the film, too. Like at the very end, when that song Xanadu starts, and the first thing you see is Gene Kelly on roller skates, you know, flying down that that corridor inside what is you're supposed to believe is the Pan Pacific Theater. Um, I don't know. There's just something really joyous about that scene, I think. Oh, I agree. When I saw it, I couldn't, couldn't stop smiling to watch Gene Kelly roller skate around that rink. Synchronized roller skating at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with all, all these people in their little 80s silk shorts behind him, like this whole like army of um, roller disco dancers following Gene Kelly. It doesn't get much better than that when it comes to, you know, just uh, the magic of cinema. <laughs> That's true. Um, so so he did have good things to say about the movie, though. I don't know how much we should trust his judgment. Um, so I found this out while also researching the film. So he was actually asked to, to direct The Sound of Music. Wow. And um, so the screenwriter, Ernest Lehman, came to his house to pitch the Sound of Music to Gene Kelly. And Lehman has also written North by Northwest and Hello, Dolly. So, you know, he's not like this new kid out of college who had this idea for a movie. And Gene Kelly escorted him out of the house and said, go find someone else to direct this piece of shit. (laughs) So I think what we're learning today is that Gene Kelly had very eclectic taste. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to put it. <laughs> so yeah, let's talk about the soundtrack, which sold over 2 million copies, spawned four big singles. Um, so, they arrange, so they didn't arrange the songs chronologically as they appear in the film. There's a like a side A and a side B. So there's the Olivia Newton-John side, and then there's the ELO side. Right, yeah. And I, I assume that was probably also part of the... Uh, the contractual arrangement, but yeah. And that, that I can even remember as a kid being sort of disappointed by that because you always sort of wanted to, you know, kind of play along through the soundtrack and relive it. And um, it wasn't in the order that you could do that. Um, 
So I do remember being slightly disappointed by that as a kid when, when I got my hands on the album, which is right here, by the way. Wow. So. That's an yeah. original pressing, huh? Yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. I was, I was going to say that uh, I feel like, you know, ELO is one of those underappreciated bands, even though they sold a bunch of records, they, they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I feel like, I don't know, like when, when you talk about like the traveling Wilburys with people, you go, oh, George Harrison. They go, oh, of course, George Harrison from the Beatles. And you go, oh, Tom Petty was in the band. And they're like, oh, yeah, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Um, Bob Dylan, of course, Bob Dylan. And then you go Jeff Lynne and they go, who? <laughs> You're absolutely right. They are, I think, one of the most under, under memorialized. Can I use that word? But because you're exactly right. In the 70s, they were playing stadiums. They were a huge, huge band. They had massive numbers of, of hits. Um, Out of the Blue was like a triple platinum album in 1977. I mean, um, they were a huge, huge band, but people don't remember the name. And they definitely don't remember Jeff Lynne's name. I mean, I was so excited when they toured um, three years ago. And I remember just telling all my friends, you know, like, oh my God, I'm going to go see ELO. And people were like, who? Who's ELO? Like they thought it was a new band. Like I was going to go some, see some like indie underground new band, you know? And I'm like, ELO, like Strange Magic, Evil Woman, Xanadu. And they're like, well, I know those songs. I've never heard of ELO. So yeah, it, it, I don't really understand that. I don't really get how a band can be that big and their names can be preserved in music history, but the band name itself, I don't know if it was just too complicated. Electric Light Orchestra was just too hard for people to remember. I don't know. Yeah, because they have a distinct sound. Like when I hear one of their songs, even if, if it's one I'm not familiar with, like I can tell like, oh, that's Electric Light Orchestra because of you know the vocoder and the different synthesizers. They're like starting to kind of come back in the public consciousness now because um, Mr. Blue Sky is showing up in movies everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. was, first it was in the Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind trailer. Mm-hmm. And people liked it so much that they just put it on the soundtrack, even though it's not in the movie. And then it also opens up Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a good way to get the kids into ELO, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love what Guardians of the Galaxy has done with um, music. They've really picked some true gems from the 1970s and early 80s and put them in their soundtrack and really, you know, brought those lesser known artists to the mainstream for a new generation. I really respect um, what they did. You know, I mean, Glenn Campbell's Southern Nights, to hear that like in a space movie, like that was that was crazy, crazy cool. But uh, I loved that. Uh, I loved both of those soundtracks. And I think, um, yeah, there are a lot of electric light orchestras that have emerged in through soundtracks in recent years. I'm trying to think of another example, but I know I've been pleasantly surprised at, at several occasions where I'm like, oh, yeah, that's ELO. Yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah, so I think we have to talk about the, uh, you know, the roller skating aspect of Xanadu. And... Um, you know, that cultural uh, sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm, I'm struggling with my words today. I apologize, Ryan. Cultural phenomenon of... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
out of all the different elements in the film, I think that is the one that took me most by surprise <laughs> was the incorporation of all the roller skating in the movie. And I like the scenes where um, Sonny Malone, the, the younger, you know, sort of ingenue who becomes Gene Kelly's character's partner in the club, his wearing and not wearing of skates, how, you know, like, I think there's a lot of, um, that, that's one of those problematic parts, of, one of the many problematic parts of this film. But, you know, like he's skating down the boardwalk and then in the next scene, he's running down the boardwalk, you know, and then he's at the Pan Pacific Theater and he's on foot and then suddenly he's inside of it roller skating. Like, I don't know if this is all because of, you know, his muse's magic was providing skates whenever he felt the need to suddenly be roller skating. But um, that's one of those, there's, there are a lot of scenes like that where it's like, he's skating, he's not, he's skating, he's not. Um, But Olivia pretty is consistent, uh, is pretty consistently skating throughout the entire film. There are very few scenes where you don't see her on skates. The one you were referencing where they're in the, the boutique when they're shopping for Gene Kelly's new clothes. I think that's one of the few scenes. And then of course, when she's skating with Gene Kelly. So maybe that's it in the scenes where she's dancing with Gene Kelly. those are the few times you see her wearing shoes. And I like that in both, you know, in that scene, she's wearing, we should also, another cultural phenomenon of 1980, of course, the leg warmers that she wears over her high heels and also over her roller skates. And then the bird that is Olivia in the uh, animated scene also wearing leg warmers. Oh, I didn't catch that. <laughs> So of course, you know, I had to buy leg warmers that day, right? After seeing the film, like that was, that was number one priority, buying the, the, the soundtrack and then buying some right. leg warmers. And I actually would, um, I did kind of try my best to replicate um, Olivia's look when I would go to the local rural roller rink in mid-Missouri. I would wear a dress and I would wear my leg warmers over my roller skates. And then I had this thing where, you know, because there's nine muses, right? So I had this elastic belt that I would put around my waist over my dress. And then I would um, tie nine scarves to my belt so that as I, you know, sort of floated around the rink floor, my, my dress, my scarves would flow like the, her costumes. Because she's got these kind of crazy layered costumes right all, all of her dresses throughout the film and then her sisters too you know when all the muses come to life at the beginning of the film they're these flowing sort of layered um silky scarfy looking skirts so I, I you know I did my best to replicate that and you know that did not bode well in my you know that didn't change my popularity by any means you know <laughs> but I didn't really care it it was good I loved feeling that you know the box fans blowing through my scarves at the roller rink. Sure. <laughs> my favorite roller skating scene from the film is right at the beginning where his friend offers him a ride in his van. And instead of getting in the van, he holds onto the back of the van in roller skates. <laughs> yeah, that is a good one. And I, thought and I like was... the part too, where he's on one of those scenes where he's on roller skates and then suddenly he's not, you know, at the beginning when he's, he's, he sees, Olivia Newton-John's character, she skates by him on the boardwalk and he's on skates and he's trying to catch up with her on skates. 
And then he realizes he can't catch up with her. So he takes a random stranger's um, moped and he suddenly, you know, then he's driving a moped without the skates. And I mean, I mean, he would have crashed either way, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) With skates or without skates, he was, he was destined to crash on that moped. Yeah. Cause then, yeah, it's the crash. Then he sits and has his cup of coffee with Gene Kelly and you know, the magic ensues. Yeah, Gene Kelly playing the clarinet on the beach. Oh yeah, right. That that um, that is also sort of a pivotal moment for me. That uh, that those rocks, you know, at Zuma Beach, um, which is actually the very first scene. You see it several times where Gene Kelly's playing his clarinet there, and um, that was one of the first places I went. I coincidentally, I had no idea that that's what was going to happen, but. I had some uh, a friend who lived in Malibu and my first week living in LA, she took me up to Zuma to watch the sunset. And I remember sitting there on those rocks and realizing like, oh my God, this is the place where Gene Kelly plays his clarinet in Xanadu. Like I've arrived, I am here. This is, this is magic. <laughs> it was meant to be. It was meant to be, yeah. So I know that you were a fan of Olivia Newton-John, the singer. Um, were you a huge fan of Grease as well? I was a fan of Grease. I think um, it's interesting because at the time, I mean, that also was just so hugely popular. And I was already obsessed with this, with, um, you know, Broadway musicals. So not that I had ever actually seen one in real life because I lived in rural Missouri, but the concept of it, like I would see... Broadway players on like, you know, Johnny Carson's show and they would sing and dance and talk about their musicals. And, and then um, I would get my mom to buy the albums and I would listen to the albums. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah. So once Olivia Newton-John, you know, did this film ap- adaptation of a, a Broadway musical that also just, that again, heightened my, um, my fandom of her because that that was my goal at that point in my life was you know to be a Broadway performer so looking back on that character now though I just think that it's such a a really really negative um message for young women you know uh I didn't really think about it of course as a kid but I remember watching that film when it was uh I don't know, like it's 30th anniversary release or something and watching it with my daughter and thinking like, oh my gosh, this is a terrible message. Why, why, why did everyone embrace this? But uh, anyway, um, but it's fun. It's a fun soundtrack too. So it makes sense that you go from Greece to Xanadu, like to do another musical. Right. Yeah. And so I, I think I, I had this ant- anticipation that Xanadu would be, you know, just another typical musical like Greece, but it was quite different, quite unique. On a lot of the songs in the movie, they don't even pretend to mimic it. They, they just right. dance to the song. You're right. There are very few scenes where they're actually, attempt, you know, it looks like they're singing, which is um, not your typical musical by any means. And it's funny because if this had come out after MTV was getting big, it probably would have not have been as jarring but they're basically like mini music videos within the movie. Yeah, they really are. Which is interesting that you say that because that is sort of what I landed on as my um, 
sort of vehicle into the music industry because I wanted, you know, I had this desire to be part of the entertainment business. But as I said, I didn't really have any talents, but I was six feet tall by the time I was 12 years old. So, um, you know, by the, by the mid eighties, by the time I graduated from high school, that was like being a fashion model in music videos was a, was a career. Like that was something that a lot of people like Paulina Porzkova and uh, a lot of other big fashion models of the eighties that they sort of um, arrived on the, the waves of the, the MTV music video. And so that, that was indeed my plan. When I, when I moved to LA, I worked as a model and uh, auditioned for music videos, never got to be in a music video, did a few, I did a soap commercial and um, a few like 17 magazine spreads and things like that, but uh, never got to do a music video. I auditioned for the um, Beastie Boys video Girls and that was disastrous. That was not my scene. I mean, I loved the music, don't get me wrong. I think Paul's Boutique actually is their best album. Um, in fact, I, one of your podcasts recently, you were talking about that, how the Dust Brothers just kind of went crazy on that Paul's Boutique album with all the sampling. I can't, uh, right. uh, but that album is brilliant. But um, yeah, that video where they're all like these girls with, you know, in skinny bikinis and like frizzy blonde hair and big long nails and kind of the epitome of the late 80s like mall hair and stuff that wasn't really me so I did not get that part <laughs> how how the how the Beastie Boys have grown since then <laughs> yeah so Xanadu is directed by Richard Greenwald um who as a as a as a fiction movie director uh I would say did not have much success, but um, he's actually he has he's actually still around and kicking. Yeah, he found his niche in um, documentary film and has had a really remarkable career in documentary film direction. In fact, um, I spent about a decade as the director of a documentary film festival, and Robert, Robert Greenwald has actually been here to Columbia, Missouri, with his. Uh, uh, high cost of low prices film about uh, the exploitation of Walmart, uh, how it has exploited its workers and and its consumers. Um, and he actually shot some of that film in my hometown where I was living when Xanadu was released. So it's, again, the magic of Xanadu, full circle. Wow. <laughs> that is another connection. But yeah, I mean, he has a really impressive, like I was actually looking at his website today he has several new films that I wasn't even aware of because I have not been on the documentary scene for about three years now. And yeah, there's, I was like, Oh, I was like writing down these titles of things I want to look up and, and watch. Yeah. It's an impressive amount of stuff that he's done. And he also directed the burning bed, which was, um, it was really groundbreaking at the time. I don't know if you're familiar or not with that, but it was a, an early eighties television film, but it was really, the first time that the media shed any light on um, domestic violence. And uh, Farrah Fawcett played the battered wife and won, I believe, won an Emmy for that role. He may have won an Emmy as well. That was a really sort of groundbreaking um, film at, its, at the time to show something like that on television. Usually people who bomb at the box office with a movie. <laughs> You know, not that Xanadu is a bad film, but um, usually when a director starts their career off with a movie like that, usually they don't recover, but it, it's good to see that he found his niche. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, and, I was 
happy to see all of the things that he's done. Um, but you're absolutely right. It definitely bombed at the box office. There's no denying that. <laughs> and, and apparently Xanadu um, helped inspire the creation of the Razzies or what was called the Golden Raspberry Awards. Yeah, I read that. That, that was sort of the inaugural film, I guess, of that. Uh, and one, kind of swept the Razzies that, that year, I think. It was between that and a, a different film. Um, I'm trying to look it up. Uh, they'll double feature Xanadu in this other film at like drive-ins for, <laughs> for, you know, cult movie night. Yeah. Can't Stop the Music. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not familiar with Can't Stop the Music. From so, what year do you know? Can't Stop the Music was also 1980. It was another musical. Okay. Um, but I guess because of because of the proximity of when they were released and because they're both considered pretty terrible at the time, they get paired together for uh, for double features, and they get paired together and they were paired together at the Razzies. I think I think Can't Stop the Music probably prevented um, Xanadu from sweeping all the Razzies. So I think having lived through the 80s, if you really want to see, um, you know, bad cinema of that era, I recommend Roller Boogie USA. You know? Okay. I've never also, heard of that one. obviously, an attempt to capitalize on the roller disco scene, also mostly shot in Venice Beach. Uh, Linda Blair is the lead actress, and it's, it's, it's not great. Yeah, it doesn't sound great. <laughs> I thought it was so funny that... You know, this this rock club that they well, it's not a rock club, this music club, right? They have these these uh this hybrid vision, right? So Danny yes. McGuire and yeah, we gotta talk about that scene. So Danny McGuire and Sonny uh, Sonny Malone. Malone. Danny McGuire and Sonny Malone. They have this hybrid vision where Gene Kelly is uh imagining like a big band and basically like, you know, He's imagining a club from his era. Right. And then Sonny Malone is imagining a club from the current era, from the 80s, as he says, like loud guitars and, and synthesizers. Um, and it's actually a pretty phenomenal production. Uh, it's I believe really it's, a, it's I mean, the tubes, right? It's the tubes. And then on the other side, you've got, you know, like this sort of replication i guess of like the andrews sisters and a and an orchestra behind them yeah but the the merging of the sound and the actual sound stages as they blend together that is i think that's the most remarkable scene of the film and actually i also think it's one of the best songs from the film and how they take those two very distinctly different styles of music and blend them for the second half of the song it's a beautiful thing, I will say. I think under the eye, I think if they had a better cinematographer, I think that scene would have popped a little bit more. I yeah. like I I don't I think I don't know if Xanadu would become a great film with a <laughs> with a better production, but I feel like there's a better film underneath some of these layers of excess. If yeah. that makes sense. It does. It does. Yeah. Like with the amount of wipes that they use in the film and wipes with sound effects. <laughs> Those are really bad. You're right. And at the end of the film, they do these wipes with the, with the X from Xanadu. Like it's, it's, it's a lot. 
And it's just, a lot of unnecessary effects. Of sound effects are the, are the best, though. I mean, it's just, you literally laugh out loud. It's so ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I had forgotten about that. I'm glad you brought those up. Those are pretty funny. I haven't watched, well, I watched it, I guess, um, you know, I watched it just a few weeks ago before I wrote that blog post. So, but yeah, that's definitely worth mentioning for sure. (laughs) I've introduced this film to a few of my friends and I always start with, okay, just so you know, like, um, this is considered one of the worst films ever made. But if you can put that, if you can just, just know that, I'm not telling you this is a masterpiece. I am telling you that this film is going to make you smile, that this music is brilliant and that this is just complete fantasy and it's a complete romp of like 80s nostalgia now. Um, Just enjoy the ride and laugh, laugh out loud because some of, like you said, some of those, those, um, you know, uh, little edits and things, they're, they're so ridiculous. You can't not laugh out loud at them, but I think it adds to the charm of it, you know, 40 years later. I like too, where he goes into work every day to like paint these giant murals and he's constantly just leaving, you know, like he's just, all of a sudden he just walks out and yet, you know, he doesn't get fired. He actually quits his job, which is kind of remarkable that the Sonny Malone character even has a job because he seems to kind of come and go as he pleases. But um, yeah, I like, and I like how, you know, in Los Angeles, they just keep running into each other at these different places. And if you sort of are familiar with the landscape of Los Angeles, you know that Zuma Beach and Venice Beach are not close to each other. You know that Tower Records is not close to Venice Beach. And yet, you know, the, he roller skates from place to place in these these sh- shots that are, you know, impo- and then the Pan Pacific Theater. I mean, I like that scene when they're um, at Venice Beach and then they're roller skating and suddenly it's like, oh, we're at the Pan Pacific Theater, which is like, you know, I mean, way far inland, right? Where that, that once stood. Well, it shows uh, how it, it, it's why they're so fit in the movie because they're just <laughs> rollerblading for miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, roller skating, not even rollerblading. Right. And then when he's he, you know, so strong that he breaks through that brick wall at Venice, you know, that's also, you know, pretty impressive talk about strength to just like skate right into the wall yeah i i honestly thought he was gonna he was gonna try to skate into the wall and then he was gonna knock himself out and then he was gonna have this dream but they just said hey let's just have him go through the wall let's just have him enter the different dimension it would have made that whole all of the the scenes that happened after that i think it would have made a lot more sense if he were dreaming because that was pretty pretty out there but it's like, nope, he's going to enter a different dimension. He's just going to yeah. go through the wall. <laughs> and have this long conversation with Zeus. Yeah, but yeah. With <laughs> Zeus and, and I guess Zeus's wife. Yeah. Basically getting permission from Kira's parents for her to go live in this other realm with him. Which it doesn't seem like he gets permission, but yet then she's there right? Like, don't you, at the end of that scene, you kind of think, like, he's never going to see her again. She's gone. And then, and also, if she wasn't scheduled to be the entertainment that night, I mean, she was the, you know, she was the headliner of the show. So, not sure how that all came to be, you know, it's their big opening night, and apparently Kira was the headliner. 
and um, and her sisters. So there seems to be a scene missing somewhere in the film. (laughs) So she does her song after he leaves the dimension. Right. uh, Which is a ridiculous thing that I just said. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I I believe she does her song and then she leaves, I guess, to a different part of the dimension. And then I think Zeus offhand is like, I guess maybe we should let her like have a little bit of independence. Well, and then there's also the scene, I think it's right in between those two scenes where he again is, you know, up at the, at Zumo with Gene Kelly's character and he's telling him that he's not coming to opening night because Kira's not going to be there. So he's just like done with the club. Like, I mean, what a lousy thing to do to his new business partner. I mean, Gene Kelly's character has put up all the money for this whole thing. And now you're not going to show up to opening night because your girlfriend can't come because your roller skating muse girlfriend can't come to the party. You're just out. But then he's there and she's there at the party. And, and, and Gene Kelly's just having a good time roller skating around the club. (laughs) I guess maybe he thought he was going to be the main act since, you know, she wasn't planning to show up. And then there she is. I do like in that scene also that that she does do a sort of a, you know, a nod to her country roots. She does a country song and she's got the cowboy hat and Mm -hmm. the cowboy boots uh, in that scene too. One of the many costume changes in that scene. Yeah. But that song is not on the soundtrack, correct? It is not. It was actually a B side of one of the singles uh, but no, it is not on the soundtrack. So Xanadu came out in 1980, and 1981 is when Physical came out, which is, I feel like, the song that everyone knows of hers now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I find that sort of unfortunate. It seems like that is what she's known for, and that was really when I parted ways with Olivia Newton-John. That song just made me cringe. I couldn't, couldn't go there. That was the end of my um, fandom. Oh, that's... I mean, I, I don't know too much about Olivia Newton-John outside of, you know, Greece and the physical song. So, so that was a deal breaker for you. That was a deal breaker for me. It was. Yeah. I, you know, I could see the, I, I, I had grown up with, you know, almost a decade of country records from Olivia Newton-John and then the crossover into pop with Xanadu. I was, was, you know, I loved the, the songs from Xanadu, but I guess in my mind, she was a country music star. And so when she did physical, it just, yeah, I thought that was like, I, I would consider that one of the worst songs of the eighties. Although I have done some research that is actually one of the top selling singles of the entire decade. And I think it's a terrible song. So Tracy, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on the podcast. This was fun. Yeah, it was great to talk Xanadu with you. It was great because it finally pushed me to actually watch the movie. But anyways, if uh, you if people are in the Columbia, Missouri area next year, check out the Roots and Blues Festival. Tracy will have some great headliners for next year. She also has the Listening Gallery blog, so check that out. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, SoundtrackYourLife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.